Guess what, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content and help this program grow by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com support. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, it is time for another episode of Felony Friday right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Felony Friday, of course, is a show where we focus each and every week on exposing injustice in the broken criminal justice system. This is the 82nd episode of Felony Friday, so that means you're going to be able to find the show notes page with links and notes to everything that I talk about today with my guest at lionsofliberty.com FF82. And today my guest on Felony Friday is Michael Krowitz. Michael has done extensive work in the field of international drug policy. He's been very influential in that field and has a lot of information to share that a lot of people are not familiar with. And due to Michael's unique background here in this field, we're going to touch on a lot of aspects of the war on drugs that are ignored almost entirely by activists altogether. I'll introduce Michael in just a minute. Before I do that, I want to tell you about the sponsor for today's show. And this show, once again, is sponsored by MartinArmory.com. And MartinArmory.com was founded on the simple goal of making buying a gun easy and affordable. Martin Armory was founded by Chris Martin. He's a libertarian. He's a small business owner. And prior to starting Martin Armory, he had a very successful career. But he was passionate about the Second Amendment, passionate about making it easy and affordable for everyone to be able to buy a firearm. And that is why he started martinarmory.com. And Martin Armory has a unique business model set up where they don't try to offer every single kind of gun they can under the sun. They focus on just the 25 top models of handguns, rifles, and shotguns. They offer them at the best prices you're going to find anywhere. So be sure to go check out martinarmory.com, see what they have, and pick out a gun that you want. When you check out, enter promo code LIONS at checkout for free shipping. Martin Armory was founded by a libertarian. It's a great way to support a libertarian small business. So please check out martinarmory.com. And with that, let's get started on today's show. Today, my guest on Felony Friday is Michael Krowitz. Michael is a disabled United States Air Force veteran. He served from 1981 to 1986 and was injured in an accident in Guam that was deemed in the line of duty, although not in any way combat related. In 1997, Michael was part of a small team of activists that protected Virginia's longstanding medical marijuana law. Uh, It was in danger of being repealed. In 1998, he was part of a United Nations Drug Summit. Since then, in 1999, Michael presented testimony to the National Academy of Science, Institute of Medicine, and he has been a leader in the international field of NGO drug policy work. He was a key player in Beyond 2008, the UN NGO Drug Summit, and was responsible for submitting the grants and arrangements for the bulk of the U.S. drug policy reform. Michael was responsible for a bill being submitted to Virginia's legislator in 2009 and another in 2012, which reformed Virginia's longstanding medical marijuana law. In 2010, Michael's uh, decade-long fight inside the VA, his fight for adequate access to pain management, it paid off and he was able to negotiate the first ever medical cannabis policy within the VA. Michael, welcome to Felony Friday. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you on the show, Michael. I'm glad we were able to get you because I think the topics we're going to talk about today, uh, we haven't talked about a lot in the past on this show. We're going to talk about really international drug policy reform and how treaties play into that. And for a lot of past episodes on the show, you know, we've brought on people in law enforcement 
lawyers, detectives, activists, and a lot of it is focused on domestic policy. So I'm looking forward to getting the, the full picture of how of maybe some of the hurdles to legalizing or ending prohibition, drug prohibition in the United States, some of those hurdles that are set up with these international treaties. And I, we'll get to that in a minute. But before we uh, before we go down that road, I just want to ask you about sort of your path. What led you to becoming an advocate for drug policy reform in the first place? Well, I, I feel in a way I was uh, kind of drafted into this fight. I was a uh, U.S. Air Force um, a technician. I was uh, what's called an electronic warfare systems technician. I worked on electronics uh, called avionics. That's uh, electronics on board aircraft. Uh, I didn't fly, but I worked on the planes on the ground, and it, it was a pretty cool job. And uh, I had an interesting career path uh, set out before me. Um, I was actually getting ready to change career paths. I was going to go over to the Army where they were going to give me a pay raise and put me through training school to learn how to fly a helicopter. Had I uh, succeeded at that, then I, I probably would still be uh, just retiring from the military now. But instead, I was given the door, uh, essentially. They uh, brought me down to a medical board, determined that my injuries that I sustained in my mo motorcycle crash that I had over in Guam uh, was uh, too too uh, severe for me to continue in the service, and they put me out on a medical disability retirement. And as a disabled vet, I went through you know I, I went through I think thirteen surgeries altogether to put me back together, either Air Force or VA surgeries. And then on top of that, you know maybe fifteen or twenty treatments, uh, medical treatments, medicines, uh, different types of therapies, all designed to try to help me cope with pain and, and, and the symptoms of, of the medications that they were giving me. And little by little, I, I was learning about, I guess, as the rest of the country was learning about, because this was the, the 1990s, uh, we were kind of learning about medical marijuana. And I learned about it kind of the way the movement did, the hard way, you know, by trial and error, learning, you know, that these pills that they were giving me had very, very serious side effects and that uh, learning on my own that cannabis could relieve not only the side effects, but relieve the need for a lot of those pills. And I was so aggravated. I was so mad that I had to go through all that trial and error, all that suffering, uh, just to find out in my research, you know, it was uh, kind of the, the word cannabis, I think, that unlocked the door for me. I looked up the word cannabis instead of the word marijuana. It leads you to a whole different history, a whole different set of information on the web or, or in books. And when I did that, I found a hundred-year-old textbook that talked about a patient just like me, a patient that had internal injuries. I got, you know, I lost my spleen. I messed up my pancreas, my intestines. And they actually talked about a patient just like me and how cannabis was a first-line medicine for that patient. And here I had been, you know, I found cannabis on my own. I mean, the VA didn't even help me find cannabis. I found it literally completely on my own. And, and still to this day, veterans have to find it on their own. But at least I would say, you know, thanks to my work, a little bit easier they find it, maybe. <laughs> so it was the the pain management that, that led you down to finding uh, using cannabis for, for for your own needs. So what led you into into activism? What made you take that next step and really start digging into uh, you know ways that you could actually reform drug policy? Well, it, it quite literally was the, that that you know the uh, the fact that. I was able to find out this information, but at such a great expense, personally, so, so much pain and, and suffering I had to experience before I could find this information. It really made me very mad. It, made, it activated me. And I, I, it's funny, but uh, my wife is probably the one that gets the blame for really finally pushing me over the top because you know, I was complaining about the, the, uh, these policies and, and talking about it so much. She said, well, why don't you go do something about it? <laughs> well, famous last words, I, I did. And, uh, you know, uh, part of the path, for me, a lot of this is kind of a path. And part of that path was I had uh, had this accident in Guam right when I was getting ready to go on this really big whirlwind trip of Asia. It was a trip that I had set up under military orders, so I was going to have precedent on these planes and fly to Korea and Thailand and all these great places. And when I got out of the service on, on disability, I wanted to try to do that trip. I never was able to do it uh, because of my injury. And I wasn't able to do Asia. It was just way too, uh, as they say, cost prohibitive for a civilian. So I did a Europe trip. 
And on that trip, I uh, was getting ready to go across Europe to all these different places. And I was hanging out with some friends in the Netherlands. And I thought to myself, you know, a friend of mine was going to see his family doctor. And I said, you know, can I ride along? I'll go, go see your doctor and establish a file just so I have a doctor in Europe that has seen me and knows me. If I have any trouble at all, you know, I can refer to that doctor and, and have somebody that you know, knows the language can talk for me. That was really the extent of it. I didn't know, but that was 1996, a little bit before Prop 215 passed. But they already had implemented a medical cannabis access program in the Netherlands. And I was able to actually access cannabis through the pharmacy system, through my doctor. Um, it, it just totally amazed me that you know, what had been so difficult in the United States with so many trials and tribulations uh, was actually quite simple and easy in the Netherlands. And that w became part of my you know, part of my, uh, you know, my presentation, if you will, when I got back to the United States, you know, hey, here I am, I'm a U.S. Air Force veteran, but I had to go to the Netherlands where they don't owe me anything. And, and they treated me with respect. They treated my medical needs with respect. My own country that I served in the military that, you know, honestly does owe me something, uh, at least, uh, you know, owes me, uh, you know, some gratitude and respect, if nothing else. I, I don't even feel that in the, in the sense of, my medical needs. And I went actually to the United Nations in 1998 with Chuck Thomas with the Marijuana Policy Project and presented there at the World Drug Summit in 1998 in New York on just that, on, on the fact that, you know, here I was using cannabis as a medicine quite effectively. It was really helping me a lot. Uh, but in my own country, I wasn't able to access it through the pharmacy. I had to go to the Netherlands to have that kind of access. Yeah, it really is amazing when you think about it, you know, how the United States government puts our, our troops in, in such danger in these hostile situations and they come home, you know, they've seen horrible things. Many, many are injured and their entire view of reality is different and they're, they're not offered medicines. One of the, over the course of history, one of the most beneficial and helpful medicines, cannabis, uh, they're not, it's prohibited in this country. It really is incredible. And Michael, when I was talking to you, uh, last week we had a phone conversation talking about this interview, and something was something that really caught my attention. You talked about a vision that you had with everyone standing around the president's desk. I think this is how it went. You can correct me if I'm wrong. And the president was about to end drug prohibition, and then and then what happened? What what happened in in the, in that vision? Well, I, let me uh, rewind a little bit before that vision. I. I in that same set of trips over to Europe, um, I actually was able to meet up with uh, uh, Chris Conrad uh, over in uh, Netherlands in Amsterdam. And he had set up something uh, called the, um, he had helped set up several things. One was a museum, uh, the Hash and uh, Marijuana Museum, uh, Ben Dronker's uh, Sensi Seeds Museum. It's a really great little museum exhibit there in Amsterdam. And I learned a lot from that. And But uh, more importantly, I think there was this activist group that I joined called Green Prisoners Amsterdam, and they were mostly trying to prevent the extradition back to the United States of a handful of Americans that were wanted for growing marijuana, you know, like 100 plants facing 100 years in prison kind of thing. One of the things that we did with Green Prisoners that was interesting is we took a little tray of seedlings, about 100 seedlings of cannabis, carried them on the train uh, right there in an open you know, open tray of, of little seedlings all the way to The Hague and showed it to the government. You know, this is what these people are facing, you know, life in prison for back in the United States, this, the, these little plants that we just carried on the train here. from, from And uh, uh, it, even, I think even more importantly, was a meeting that I attended at this, uh, uh, another function that Chris helped create called the uh, uh, Peace House, the Drugs Peace House. It was the, the Bronkhurst brothers, I think, Adrian... Bronkers was, I think, the driving force behind the, the Peace House. And we had a Wednesday night cannabis meeting. <laughs> and just all this experience and everything just gave me, I think, an international feel for everything. And when I came back to the United States, uh, there was this new thing called the Internet. You might have heard of it. <laughs> and and I, I started looking up uh, international policy and found my way to the international treaties and the uh, drug control program of the United Nations. Uh, and a U.S. Constitution. And in the United States Constitution, I found a line that I thought was pretty remarkable because it said that treaties, once they were ratified, were con considered the supreme law of the land. 
And uh, later I, I came to find out that, that what that is interpreted as is that treaties, uh, once they're ratified, are a, a form of federal law, a very high uh, form of federal law. So it's, it's not something that can be laughed off. I, I think in our country, you know, our government especially has uh, you know, treated with a certain amount of uh, disregard treaties. And I think our citizenry, uh, for that matter, and for that reason, uh, you know, is very kind of disregards treaties, but they are part of our system. Once we ratify a treaty, it's a very high standard, a very high uh, threshold of, of uh, you know, majority vote in our U.S. Senate to get these things. And it has to go out to the states and get ratified. It's quite a process. And once that process is accomplished, it becomes federal law. So anyway, I had this vision. I, I can't remember, you know, if it was at night or sleeping or whatever. I just remember it very solidly seeing us all standing around the president's desk and the president was getting ready to sign a law that we had, you know, earnestly asked uh, the president to sign and Congress had duly passed. And someone from the other side of the table, literally the other side of the desk, said something about the treaty. And we were all like deer caught in headlights. We didn't know what to say. And, and that feeling of being just completely, uh, you know, caught off guard and the, uh, the amount of weight that that you know statement of what about the treaties had to the process and to the to the president, you know, hesitating, you know, holding it, holding back his hand on that on that signature and that in that vision, was pretty powerful for me, and and that drove me to try to get organizations that work. I, I basically chose non-government organizations, NGOs as they're called in the UN circles, that uh, were working in medicinal access and or human rights, some kind of aspect of human rights and medicinal access. And I, I've been working inside the drug policy reform movement. Uh, I was kind of an apprentice, if you will. And I had a pretty good bird's eye view of all the different organizations uh, that were working in that in that sphere. And uh, I literally created a, a portfolio of these organizations. And to my surprise, I thought I was going to bring these organizations the application to fill out, to get accredited at the UN, and they would just sign it and send it in. And they looked at me and said, what's an NGO? <laughs> so, you know, so it took me like 10 years. I, I started in the 90s, and, and it wasn't until 2008, uh, that drug summit that you talked about, where the UN Office on Drugs and Crime uh, got together NGOs from around the world for a you know, to create a consensus resolution of what the NGOs in, around the world feel are the priorities of drug policy. Um, that wound up, I just wound up plugging right into that. I had a portfolio of 26 organizations and, uh, 11 of them were accepted as part of that 300 NGOs that actually went to Vienna and participated in it was three days of grueling meetings. And, and we actually produced a consensus document. I, I believe that consensus statement is the only one that's ever been created on drug policy. So what's an example? I mean, you're talking about NGOs, non-governmental organizations. What's an example of like what would be an NGO? What type of organization? Some of the organizations that I brought to Vienna were uh, uh, what Drug Policy Alliance. Uh, actually, it, it was funny. Uh, they took uh, Safety First, which was a Drug Policy Alliance project, and they didn't uh, want Drug Policy Alliance per se. That was cute, uh, but the, 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 it was it was good because uh, Safety First was a really good foot forward. Uh, we had a professor, uh, oh, I can't remember his name, but we had a, a professor that was representing uh, Safety First. We had uh, Chris Crane with uh, SSDP, Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Uh, we had LEAP, uh, you know, Law Enforcement Against mm -hmm. Prohibition. They've renamed themselves now uh, Law Enforcement Action Partnership. We had right. Jack Cole. One of the most important players that I helped bring to the table, uh, we had two Harvard uh, lawyers in the room. One I brought and one that, I, that came without my help. Uh, uh, Deborah Small from uh, uh, Breaking the Chains uh, came without my assistance. Uh, she's she's really amazing activist, and her organization has always been plugged in uh, very well. So she she was there. And then I helped, the, believe it or not, the ACLU, uh, Graham Boyd, to to attend. And uh, Graham, you know, really put it very cleanly. You know, we have a millions dollar budget. Uh, however, I can't just go back to the funders and say, you know, I got this trip to Vienna popped up. Can I get another 10,000? <laughs> so, you know, my little grant proposal uh, to send all these folks to Vienna and, you know, put them up out there so they could go to these meetings wound up being kind of critical to, to getting everybody over there, getting this done. Um, but, yeah, having the two Harvard uh, uh, 
uh, grad, uh, you know, legal minds, I think was key because, you know, this was a room, it was 300 NGOs. It, it, it was such a wide ranging room. We had, you know, kind of what you might consider objective uh, viewpoints of like the Red Cross or whatever. We had the uh, very much anti-drug uh, Narcotics Officers Association or Drug Free America Foundation, etc. Um, and and uh, yeah, and and law enforcement against prohibition in the same room, and we reached consensus. <laughs> that's that is magic. pretty. That is pretty incredible. But I, that's that's a good point. It is important to bring all these voices together because even though they might be wrong in what they're thinking, you know, they represent a, a wide swath of people that believe those same things. So in, in order to form some consensus and actually move the ball forward and put an end to some of this prohibition, some of this, uh, some of this tyranny, really, um, yeah, that's, that's super important, I think. And you deserve a lot of credit for, for pulling that together. One thing I want to ask you about that I'm, I'm sure my listeners are, are kind of thinking to themselves right now, we're talking about these treaties, what are these treaties? What what specific treaties are standing in the way of ending drug prohibition? Well, I, I think that uh, no matter what you're talking about with drug policy, I think you have to ground yourself in history because if you don't, then you run the chance of making a very simple error um, and a very logical error uh, that, that you would assume things that aren't true. Like people would assume that uh, more dangerous drugs are more restrictedly uh, controlled than less dangerous drugs, for example. <laughs> That's not true. It's right. absolutely absolutely not true, um, you, just as an example. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that uh, you, you really have to know where these things come from. And, and where the treaty system comes from, I, I, I feel like it's most directly tied back to the opium wars. If you want to really, you know, study the origins of our drug control policy at the international level, you have to go back to the you know, 1890s with the opium wars in China and Britain. And uh, we had a, a convention that was passed. It was the Shanghai Convention. I think it was like the 1890s, uh, directly as a result of, of the uh, of, of the opium wars. And um, our, you know, Opium Act, uh, you know, the, our uh, uh, Harrison Narcotics Control Act. In the United States, 1914 flowed right from that. You know that the, these uh, U.S. laws hinge on international actions. That's that's another little side point. And that, but what happened was we had these treaties that were passed, a whole bunch of them, from 1899 to like 1960. Um, but in 1962, uh, you might remember a fellow named Harry Anslinger. He was the uh, the uh, Treasury Department uh, uh, Volstead Act. Uh, you know. Uh, uh, alcohol prohibition agent that you know found himself a, a new career path with marijuana back in the 1930s and, and helped create the Federal Marijuana Tax Act, which was found unconstitutional in 1969. His hope in 1960 was to help the United States help the rest of the world uh, create a treaty system uh, and ratify that in the United States in the hopes that that would uh, kind of sure up the constitutional standing of this marijuana tax act as as i just said it didn't work in 1969 the marijuana tax act was found unconstitutional anyway timothy leary's case in the supreme court um, but nonetheless he was instrumental in us passing these uh new uh you know what you might call an omnibus drug control treaty uh the uh, single convention um, on narcotic drugs and it's three parts it's 1960s 1970s and 1980s um, and each part is its own treaty, and the three treaties together makes up what we call the single convention on narcotic drugs. Um, the first one is the one that we talk about the most. That's the one that has uh, you know cannabis in it. Um, specifically, uh, there's uh, cannabis uh, like extracts in, in the second one, I think. Um, uh, and then the third one, it talks about uh, some other issues as well connected to cannabis. Uh, you know, uh, cannabis advertising, cannabis, uh, uh, you know, prolifer proliferation of uh, cannabis promotional material, that kind of thing, which is interesting because the entire treaty system with, when it comes to drugs <clears throat> has to be looked at through the lens of your own country's constitution. It's very specifically designed to be a, co a, a cooperative agreement where the member countries, there's no blue hats, there's no like enforcement squad to enforce the uh, UN, to enforce the, 
drug control treaties like there might be for other uh, aspects of UN, uh, you know, involvement in our world, uh, proliferation of nuclear weapons, for example, something like that. It doesn't work that way. Uh, in drug control, it's completely an agreement amongst nations. And if the uh, as the free speech provisions in the in the eighty eight convention conflict with, with our uh, treat our our U.S. Constitution, they are just completely invalid in the U.S. Um, I worry about countries. There's 185 countries, and some of them don't really have constitutions or very protective ones. That's one problem. Uh, but but also the treaty itself, I think, is based on a false premise, and that is it, it's set right in motion, right in the first paragraph of the treaty, uh, this notion that uh, somehow, well, first of all, it says that uh, drugs are indispensable for relieving suffering and, and that the member states, these countries sign this agreement. Uh, that I think is very important to highlight because that is a, a legal requirement. The countries that sign this treaty, that agree to this treaty actually and ratify it are agreeing to a legal responsibility to their own people. And that's something that hasn't been really fleshed out very much. Uh, but you know, when something is dis, uh, dis, you know found to be a medicine, found to be useful, found to be uh, worthy of of, uh, of access, then the countries, by the nature of the treaty, actually have the responsibility to make sure that patients have access, that their citizens have access. And uh, you know, certainly you can look at medical marijuana as a failure on that front. Um, but yeah. Uh, I think that the the treaty uh, itself, the premise of the treaty being that non-medical and non-scientific use of drugs shall be prohibited, that only medical use and, and scientific use of drugs are necessary for the benefit of mankind, I think is a false premise. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that, um, you know, having just medical and scientific as categories is uh, in itself disrespectful of the human condition. Indeed it is. I mean, it's really th this treaty system is really taking ownership of all of the participating country citizens of their bodies and dictating what, what they can and can't put in their bodies. So when you look, you look at it that way, it's pretty, pretty disturbing. Let's take a quick pause from this great conversation with Michael Krawitz to hear a message from the sponsor of today's show, Martin Armory. I firmly believe one of the most important things you can do to protect yourself and your loved ones is to own a firearm. But for a lot of people, buying a gun can be an overwhelming process. There are just so many options, and not everyone feels comfortable walking into a gun store. Well, our friends at martinarmory.com are doing their part to change that. Martin Armory was founded with a simple goal, to make buying a gun simple and affordable. Instead of carrying thousands of different guns, MartinArmory.com only carries 25. This allows them to focus on providing the most popular guns on the market at insanely cheap prices. And now for a limited time, their prices are even more insane as MartinArmory.com is offering Lions of Liberty listeners free shipping. Simply go to MartinArmory.com, pick an awesome gun, and enter the promo code LIONS. Again, that's MartinArmory.com. The promo code is LIONS. Some of these member countries are, you know, I think you know, Russia is a part of this, right? And, and yeah, some of these yeah. more to totalitarian regimes um, who probably have no interest in reforming any of this. And what would ha I mean, what would happen if the United States did did? Uh, I don't know if they could back out of the treaty or just completely dis disregard the treaty and go to start uh, ending the prohibition on, on some of these drugs. Would there be some sort of you know response for the for the U.S. breaking the treaty? Well, on the first part of that, uh, China, Russia, even France, uh, we've got a lot of real you know, supporters of the current paradigm, of the drug war paradigm. And it's a real shame because uh, there's, you know, there's just no way that you're going to be able to ever make uh, you know, something correct if its premise is wrong. And if I'm right, you know, in this, we're, we're kind of digging a rut here and just digging it deeper and deeper. Um, what's happening right now is really fascinating. <clears throat> Excuse me. I, I think you can look at really kind of an informative lesson in history is to look at Bolivia. Uh, Bolivia uh, said that they came to the United Nations and, and uh, I was there actually. Uh, it was just a, by chance that I happened to witness this. But the president of Bolivia, Evo, Evo Morales, got up at the United Nations years ago and pulled coca leaves out of his pocket and did a protest right there at the podium. And, and I, I was witness. I was there in the room when he did it. Um, coca leaves being a 
prohibitive uh, prohibited substance, he was, you know, uh, breaking the, the rules by, by carrying that in his pocket and going, uh, when you're, a, when you're a president of a country, you can get away with that at the UN. Right. So, so, uh, he, he, uh, he made this really impassioned speech about how Bolivia had been signed into the, the treaties by a dictatorship. The people really hadn't had the ability to be consulted. It was a mistake of history that they signed into the treaty without a reservation for COCA. And they plead, made their plea to the body, to the world body to change the treaty. And that was a good step. It was a, a proper thing to do, even though it, 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 you know, might not have been considered winnable. Uh, it was, it was useful, and it was important that they did that, and and it was instructive what happened, which was that they could not reach consensus, could not get over, you know, over over power the you know Chinese influence or whatever Japanese influence on the floor, and uh, they instead, check this out, they changed their constitution to give their people more rights uh, when it came to cultivating coca and possessing coca, which I think is something that we all need to look at, our own constitutions, and how much we uh, have protected our right to plants. That's something we can work on in the U.S. and elsewhere, instructive from Bolivia's experiment. But also, what they did was they went back to the United Nations body, but this time they said, we're going to withdraw from the treaty. And the treaty, we're gonna, we're, we're not gonna be a signature of the treaty anymore. We're gonna reapply, and we're gonna reapply with a reservation. And and you can't block us from doing this by just refusing to 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 allow consensus. You have to, you have to vote us out this time. And and it, it took, uh, you know, like uh, I forget it was a simple majority vote, I, I believe, or or maybe a, a, a slight supermajority vote that Bolivia had to reach to be able to be approved to do this. And they did it. They, they got the, uh, the requisite number of votes on the floor of the, uh, it's called the Commission on Narcotic Drugs, where they make these decisions in the world body. It's 53 uh, countries that are designated uh, to be on this commission and, and make out these decisions uh, year to year. And they, they got it through and they, they reapplied and they are now, you know, members in good standing of the international community with a reservation. And it's absolutely legal in their country uh, to possess and, and uh, cultivate coca that might not be in other countries that are signature to the, to the treaty. So that's, you know, that's a good illustration of one way um, that a country has been able to deal with this. But what we have right now, we have Canada, United States, Mexico, Uruguay, uh, Jamaica, and that's just in the Americas that I can think of off the top of my head that are working on uh, cannabis policy right now that is clearly uh, outside of uh, the limits of, of what the treaty is calling for. And I don't see these countries withdrawing and reapplying. Uh, I don't see these countries getting consensus from the international community. Really, basically, the only thing I see left would be sort of uh, like we have in the United States with dry counties and wet counties, where we're going to wind up with uh, wet counties and dry counties at the international level, where we're going to have literally blocks of countries that have alternative agreements that they've set up. Uh, That's provided for in the treaty system as well. So you may wind up with certain parts of the world uh, that will have a different treaty system than other parts of the world. I'd rather that not happen. because one world makes it a lot easier to uh, reach patients and get medicine in their hands. And this is really good medicine. Um, and, and, and it makes it a lot more expensive, I think, too, when you have to uh, you know, deal with these barriers. Look at what's happening in the United States with the various states that have legal and, and that don't. It makes a mess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, obviously, you'd like to maximize the amount of freedom and minimize the amount of black market use. Black markets obviously induce violence. And even if in in the United States we do get to a point where we can end drug prohibition, um, if there's countries around the world that are are still having this drug prohibition, still – you know, having black market violence, that's that's not a good thing, even though it's its not right in front of our face. So obviously we want to maximize freedom uh, across the globe. And I think I think that's important to keep that as the as the ideal goal, as, as you were saying. So you talk about the path forward, uh, a way that Bolivia dealt with it and the concern with the, the U.S. and Canada and Mexico with cannabis cannabis policy changing uh, right now. Did 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 Mexico just legalize marijuana or decriminalize Me- marijuana recently? 
Mexico had a court case that uh, dictated a change in the federal law, and they're working on changing the law, I believe, pretty steadily. They've created a medical marijuana program at this point. That's what it was. Okay. Um, so Can- Canada, Canada, I believe, is uh, and, and Uruguay would be probably the most bold uh, first steps towards you know a policy that would be outside of the treaty. And you know, it's really interesting. We we've had these. Ever since 2008, we've been able to have really good conversations with some of the leaders of our UN drug system. You've got this International Narcotics Control Board, which is a 13-member board, which is supposed to be experts, some of them chosen by the World Health Organization, some of them chosen by the Commission on Narcotic Drugs, some of them chosen by member states. Um, And these 13 members are supposed to act independently and be like the quasi-legal authority of uh, what the treaties mean. And the uh, last couple of years, we've had really great dialogues with the president of the INCB. And this last dialogue, just this last March, um, an a, a activist from Spain asked him a very pointed question about the treaty and the social clubs. And the answer is fa- fascinating. What, what, he did, what he said was, okay, uh, you know, agreeing you know, and, and uh, I guess uh, complimenting the, the INCB on their uh, statements on uh, what's called, uh, um, uh, oh gosh, I can never think of all these terms, but, but it, it, uh, there's a, a term that they have uh, for uh, the, the uh, offense not, not being given uh, criminal status if it, if it isn't needed to, to have criminal status. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the treaty prohibits drug use, but it doesn't say that you have to criminalize drug use. It doesn't say you have to criminalize drug users. It doesn't say you have to put people in prison for uh, minor drug offenses. Um, a, a proportionality is what they, they the proportionality of, of, the, of the sentencing. And, and uh, the, certainly within proportionality, they're actually emphasizing, even, even promoting decriminalization. And uh, the social clubs guy from Spain is saying, hey, we're we're just taking this decriminalization and trying to come up with a safe model, a, a good, you know, codified model. And, and why are you not happy about this? Why are you not, you know, on our side? You seem to be pointing at us as part of the problem. And he said, it's the minute you codify it that that, that we're ha- we have a problem with it. So so enforcing decriminalization is a problem with our policy. That, that our policy requires the specter of punishment, even if the punishment isn't going to be there. I, I think that right there, if you really dig into that oyster, you know, I think you really you, you find just the, the weirdness of this drug prohibition that trying to set up rational policies that create safety and prosperity for your citizens run afoul of the law, run afoul of the treaty. You, you got a problem there. That, that's what they call not fit to purpose. Yeah, it is. It is super weird. And, and, and you keep saying that the, the root premise is wrong. But on top of that, a lot of these countries, the United States in the past has been one of them that has benefited from drug prohibition. So you've got some people coming in with, with agendas. To oh, I, I think I think that's the elephant in the room. And, and you know, first to go on that just for another second. Uh, there's quite a bit of corruption out there, and you can't discount that. And there, corruption can reach every level of government. And some of the governments that are supporting the drug war, I'm accusing them right now of corruption. Uh, I'll do that. I'll stay there with an absolute straight face and, and, and mean it um, without pointing fingers directly at anyone. <laughs> so, But uh, the thing is, though, that uh, these treaties, it, going back to the opium wars again, we had a presentation from another president of a different uh, president of the INCB years ago um, who gave a presentation on the on the 100 year anniversary of that Shanghai convention, 1999. And he talked about <laughs> he, he gets up there and he says the treaties have been a, a fantastic success. Allow me to explain. And I was like on the edge of my seat. I was like, OK, I got to hear this. How have the treaties been a success? This is really going to be good. But he did convince me because. What he explained was that the treaty system was set up in large part as an agreement amongst nations to prevent nations from using, uh, overtly using uh, drugs and medicinal access as weapons of war, as they did in the, in the opium wars, which it was a trade war, a British trade war. Um, 
defending British trade, <laughs> making them take more opium trade in China was satisfying the need of Britain to sell more opium for their trade imbalance. You follow me? So, so uh, I think that you know, trading off the uh, covert drug wars that we've had in more recent times, um, and maybe setting that aside and, and uh, you know, for the moment, uh, in the big picture, overtly using uh, drugs as a weapon of war between nations, you have to agree that hasn't happened since the opium wars. Yeah, but I mean, I, I see, I see what you're saying, but it's it's instead they've traded off with just a war on the streets. I mean. So I mean, you've had you've had wars in inner, inner cities, essentially. I mean, with the amount of violence associated with with uh, with drugs and, and the black markets. I mean, it's just been trade off. Maybe you haven't had international conflicts. Well, I think a perfect snapshot of the weirdness of the drug war in, in recent days was a, a report that I was reading a couple of years back about Afghanistan, where they the our forces going in there trying to you know kind of straighten up what's going on from previous messes that were made um, had to allow folks to cultivate opium because if they didn't cultivate the opium, they would fall prey to these uh, uh, extremists. Mm -hmm. um, and then they had to have somewhere safe to sell the opium other than to the extremists so that it didn't profit the, uh, the, the war making capability of those that we were trying to fight. Uh, and then on top of that, You've got this glut of, of opium, uh, heroin, uh, essentially, and at, at, in a place that has remarkably high levels of, uh, of lack of access to medicine. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, it's surreal, really, when you paint all that in one picture. It's, it's almost like some sort of impressionist painting. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty freaking ridiculous, really, when you look at it that way. Um, just really just reinforces why it's it's not wise to be to get entangled with uh with the affairs of other countries in, in in ways like that because it can get pretty nuanced and complicated and you know you think you're doing good things then by allowing allowing these uh citizens in these countries to cultivate opium to sell it and then before you know it you're what, what do you what, what are you doing at the end of the day? It's just a just a ridiculous situation. But uh, Michael, I really want to thank you for coming on the show. We could talk about you know a lot, a lot of this stuff for I don't know hours on end, and I'll have to have you back on to dig into more of this because I'm sure I'll get some some questions on this, maybe some questions on the specific the specifics that you talked about. So before I let you go though, could you just share with my audience where they can learn more about you, learn more about your work, and how they can help? Well, uh, before I leave, I just want to mention one thing that we didn't talk about. Uh, we have a process underway at the World Health Organization right now uh, where the 1935 placement of cannabis into the treaty system, that was the evidentiary process that they did for cannabis was 1935, most recent, um, is actually being updated right now. So those who are interested in cannabis policy internationally, I definitely recommend them to pay attention to uh World Health Organization. There's going to be a meeting in November in Geneva. Um, you know, pay attention to this stuff, um, and certainly, you know, feel free to contact me or uh, any any members of our team. Uh, I'm part of the. Uh, uh, I, I represent Veterans for Medical Cannabis Access. We're a voluntary uh, veteran service organization in the United States, um, but we're part of the International Medical Cannabis Patients Coalition, and also the New York NGO Committee on Drugs. And uh, I'm uh, in the leadership of both of those. So you reach out to both of those and it's a short funnel to reach me. Uh, day to day, we update uh, Facebook. Uh, Veterans for Medical Cannabis Access Facebook page is probably where I update the, the most uh, frequently of, of stuff going on, uh, both internationally and nationally with our veterans work. And that's uh, uh, Facebook slash USA.VMCA. And I uh, encourage people to reach out and uh, learn more about uh, non-government organizations stuff at the UN, participate, check out the New York NGO committee and uh, check out the, the coalition and, and our work. Well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me anytime. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Michael Krowitz. I told you that it was going to be a lot of stuff that you haven't even thought about before. Uh, you probably you know, haven't really put much time into reading about international treaties, how they impact the war on drugs, what we need to do in order to change things and mend things in these treaties that could 
somehow help us back here in the United States to move the war on drugs forward. So really, educational stuff, and I'm going to encourage you to go to the show notes page at www.lionsofliberty.com slash FF82. Check out what I linked to there for more reading on this stuff. And really, guys, I don't have a lot to add today. Full disclosure, I'm recording this a little bit ahead of time because I'm taking a week week of vacation. You know, even, uh, even libertarian podcast hosts need some vacation, some time away. So I need to take a little vacation, so I'm recording this ahead of time. So I'm not going to do a long conclusion here. From the heart, guys, the reason we do this is to spread the message of liberty. And I've been reminded a couple of times recently from speaking with some friends, from talking to people, talking to strangers online through Facebook, I've been reminded just how far we have to go. And I did put a post up in the Lions of Liberty forum a little over a week ago talking about this, but I really do think that you guys probably know this, but I was just kind of slapping in the face over the past couple days that we are not close to where we need to be from an educational perspective, getting people to understand the principles of liberty, getting people to understand that a society is better, society is more just where we're not putting people in cages for putting a certain substance in their body or transacting a substance, buying a substance from someone else that is on a government list that says you can't buy that. It's not good. It's not good, guys. And we have a long way to go. And there's a lot of people who support the war on drugs, who think that, you know, a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump, I believe this, really support Jeff Sessions. And they really think that, you know, all they needed, you know, Trump's doing the right thing by putting Jeff Sessions in. He's hard on crime. He's tough on crime. He's going to lock these criminals up and he's going to clean up the streets. That's what a lot of Trump supporters voted for. And that's really unfortunate. And it's even more unfortunate that people on the left, the liberals, it's hard to ally yourself with liberals because they're so freaking crazy today. I don't even know what liberals even stand for, what progressives stand for, what they're trying to accomplish. It's also PC and social justice warrior. I, I I don't even know where they're coming from. It's hard to even have a conversation with liberal. And then when you go to try to have a conversation on the other side, on the right, with uh, so-called conservatives, Republicans, it's it's not good. It's It's not a good situation, guys. And we have a long way to go. And I guess what I'm saying is, this is long-winded. I really didn't plan on uh, talking about this for this long. But I've been doing this show for coming up on over a year and a half. It'll be obviously two years, the the end of this year. 82 episodes of Felony Friday. Long before that, I was writing many, many articles for years and years. And I'm passionate about this. I don't I'm not doing this for my own health. I'm not doing this to, to make me feel good about myself. I'm doing this because I want a better world for me and my family and my my daughter and my future children that I'll hopefully have and my future grandchildren someday. I want a better world for them. I want a better world for your children, your grandchildren, your family, your friends. That's why I'm doing this. So I'm just going to ask you guys, if you've been listening to this show, if it really resonates with you, If you find yourself nodding along and saying, hell yeah, let's end the war on drugs, step up to the plate, share the show, talk boldly about this stuff, because guys, we have the answer. We need to stop being ashamed of our beliefs. This is a crucial, crucial point in our nation's history. So much much mud in the water, it's hard to even understand what the left and right are doing. If us as libertarians, as the libertarian movement as a whole, without even saying the Libertarian Party, because they got their own freaking problems. I think we all understand that. If Libertarians as a whole can just speak clearly to our neighbors, to our friends, share shows like this one, share shows like The Lava Flow, like Johnny Rocket Launchpad, We Are Libertarians, Jason Stapleton Program, Tom Woods, Part of the Problem with Dave Smith, share shows like that with your friends. Share all of these shows and Guys, the time to change the world is now. The media landscape is changing entirely, and we need to capitalize. The time is now to step up. So with that being said, guys, I'm not going to say really too much else here. You guys know about the Lion's Pride. Uh, I'd really love for you to be in it. We have, as I'm recording this, about 30 members. It would be great to have 
three times that. So you can sign up for the Lions Pride at lionsofliberty.com slash support for as little as $5 a month. And if you can't give $5 a month and you enjoy listening to this program, you know, I hate to be direct with you, but I mean, come on, it's $5 a month, guys. That's a cup of coffee a lot of places, unless you're in LA, maybe, then maybe a cup of coffee is $10 a month. I don't know. It's pretty expensive. But anyway, $5 a month, lowest tier, $10 up to $25. You get more more perks, more stuff, the more that you donate. And would love to have you at $25. We're starting to get some, some more people on that monthly conference call at $25 a month. Also, Lions of Liberty store. Brian McWilliams released his Electric Liberty Land design. Check that out, lionsofliberty.store. I'm going to be releasing a Felony Friday design. You can check that out at lionsofliberty.store. I'll be announcing that in the Lions of Liberty forum. You can find the Lions of Liberty forum on Facebook by going to Facebook, putting Lions of Liberty forum in the search bar at the top, and we'll get you approved as long as you're a real person. That is our private Facebook group. We're talking about there's great conversations about liberty going on every single day. So get yourself in the Lions of Liberty Forum. And lastly, Donor C. And I'm not going to talk about a specific project for Donor C because I'm recording this very much ahead of time. And probably by the time I talk about the project, you guys probably will have funded it. So all I'm going to say is go check out the group on Facebook, Walk the Walk. It's a group headed up by Clint Rankin. He's a member of our, our Lions of Liberty Forum. He's a member of the Lions Pride. And he's put together this group and he's pulling together libertarian podcasts, libertarian activists to walk the walk. To actually, libertarians always talk about funding things through private charity, changing the world through private charity. We don't need coercive government. Well, this is libertarians stepping up and walking the walk. So please join Clint's group, Walk the Walk, on Facebook. That's all I have for today, guys. Thank you so much for listening to my rant here today. And thank you for allowing me to get this off my chest. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.